0: book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 11 is where we are. Had a wonderful week at Dunseverick. The Lord really blessed in the meetings up there. Thankful for your prayers while I was gone and indeed for those who filled the pulpit here whilst I was ministering there. Joshua chapter 11 is where we are this morning in verse 21 and we're going to read verses 21 down to the end of the chapter and verse to Verse 23. Joshua chapter 11, beginning in verse 21, and it says, And at that time came Joshua, and cut off the Anakins from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua destroyed them utterly with their cities. There was none of the Anakims left in the land of the children of Israel, Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod there remained. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord said unto Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance unto Israel according to their divisions by their tribes, and the land rested from war. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word this morning. Well, for the past two months now, our news headlines have been dominated by events in Israel and the war in Gaza. And in light of current events, we have taken the time and we have looked at Israel. We've thought about Israel as a place, about the the land and how the land was given to the Jews by the Lord. We've thought about the people and how they're eternal and immortal, and we thought about their preservation and how that God in every generation retains a remnant of believers right to the very end. Well, this morning I want to speak about their problems, and I want to make an application today from this text to our lives individually, but I want you to think about what we just read. We've opened here to the book of Joshua, and Joshua, of course, is the Bible's great conqueror. He's the successor to Moses, and he stood on the border of Canaan when God commissioned him to go over this Jordan, and And all this people unto the land which I do give them, even to the children of Israel. So there's no question Joshua is one of the heroes of the Bible. He's a mighty warrior. Uh, He was a commander of the Israelite army. He is a man of true grit. Uh, Like most military men, he didn't suffer fools gladly. Uh, He regularly showed decisive leadership as he took up the occupation of Israel. And in time his victory was secure. And he had subjugated uh, the Canaanites within the land. And then, as we've read, he divided the, uh, the land among the tribal peoples, the, tribal, uh, the tribes of Israel. And uh, he gave the land over to them. But here in verse 22, we see something of an oversight. We read that there were some areas uh, of land that Joshua left unconquered. And it says there was none of the Anakims left. In the land of the children of Israel, only in Gaza and in Gath and in Ashdod there remained. Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. Now, Joshua's duty was to take all the land and remove all the heathen people from the land. And so, for some strange reason, Joshua left these three areas alone. He had three areas of unconquered territory. And uh, God said to Joshua, you are to take all the land. And he took all of it except for Gaza and Gath and Ashdod. And today, right at this very hour, Israel is in some sense still suffering from that same region because these areas are all down in the, on the southern coast of Israel or just inland uh, from the southern coast. Uh, Gaza, of course, is, the, uh, is that part of the territory that's most in the news now in the Gaza Strip. Uh, Ashdod uh, and, and is just a little bit uh, above there, above, uh, above uh, Gaza along the coastline. And Gath is uh, halfway between Ashdod and, and uh, Bethlehem. So, so these are all in the southern parts of Israel. And uh, they were a problem to Joshua, or they were a problem to the people of Israel in Bible times, and they're a problem to the people of Israel today. And how things might have been different had Joshua conquered this piece of territory. You know, you think how many Jewish lives might have been saved, how many Arab lives might have been saved over the years if Joshua had not left that particular region unconquered. Well, this morning I want you to see the impact of Gaza Gath and Ashdod upon the history of Israel. And I want to then come back to these historical truths that we're going to look at this morning. And then I'm going to lay those truths upon your laps and, uh, and to personally apply them to our lives and, uh, and ask the question, how many of us have unconquered areas in our particular lives, little pockets of our lives in which the devil has a foothold that we've never tackled, that we've never dealt with, and have created a running sore in our relationship with the Lord Jesus down through the years. Well, let's think, first of all, about Joshua's area of unconquered land. Again, verse 22, There was none of the Anakims left in the land of the children of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod, There remain now. We're we're going to leave Joshua behind for a moment, and we're going to proceed into the scriptures, and we're going to take a look and see what happened as a result of Joshua's neglect in this area. And I want you to see how Gaza and Gath and Ashdod proved to be areas that plagued the Israelites and hindered God's will in the years that followed. Now, what I want us to say is this. These tiny seeds of unconquered territory fell into the ground, and as they sprang forth, they brought nothing but defeat and demoralization and defiance to the heart of Israel. Well, let's think about Gaza this morning. Not modern Gaza, but ancient Gaza. And we have to ask, well, what happened with respect to Gaza. Well, let's turn to the book of Judges, if you will, and to uh, Judges uh, chapter 17 is where we'll uh, take our first reading. And uh, the period of the Judges was a, very, was a very strange time in Israelite history. It was a period really quite reflective of our own uh, times, insofar as uh, people lived pretty much as they pleased without any real thought of God. And in Judges chapter 17 and verse 6, uh, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Isn't that how it is today? People just do what they think is right. They say, I let my conscience be my guide. Or they say, well, I'm just going to please myself. I'm going to do what makes me happy. I'm not going to worry about anybody else or anything else. Certainly not going to worry about God. I'm not going to worry about the Bible. That's a old Bronze Age book, and it has no say uh, today on my life. Uh, I'm just going to get on. And make the best of it as I, as I can. And that's where people were in the times of the judges. You know, when men do that which is right in their own eyes, you can be sure that sin will follow. And when sin follows, you're only a step away then from judgment. And that's exactly what happens in the book of Judges. The people would give themselves over to sin. Their sin would run them into trouble. They'd be conquered or they'd be, uh, they'd be troubled uh, by their enemies. And then they would appeal to the Lord. They would cry out to the Lord in their trouble. God in his grace would hear their prayer. He would send them a savior, a deliverer, a judge. The judge would come take care of their particular need, they would settle down for a while, and then they drift into sin, and the whole cycle would continue. So the book of Judges is cyclical in that sense. You have sin, you have suffering, you have a Savior, and then you go back to sin again. And so it continues all the way through this particular book book. So this is what we find in this book. If you go back to chapter 13 now, I want to talk about a particular judge and a particular sin, and and I want you to see the connection here. Judges chapter 13, and uh, let's look at verses 24 and 25. It speaks about a woman, and it says, The woman bare a son, and called his name Samson. And the child grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtel. Now, everybody knows the story of Samson, every Sunday school child knows the story. Of Samson. In fact, I would say even people who are not that uh, familiar with the Bible probably know the story of Samson. Of course, uh, you know you don't need me to reiterate it. We talk about his supernatural strength is and how it was related to the length of his hair and so on. But very often when we're reading these stories in the Bible, we make them like standalone stories. You know, like this is just a, a section here and it stands on alone. If you can see it as a as a library books or a series of library books, you have this book that says Samson on it. And you pull that out and you tell Samson's story apart from all the other books. But the Bible doesn't always work that way. In fact, it rarely works that way because the stories that you read in the Bible are connected to the Bible as a whole and they're rarely standalone stories. And so what I want to do is read the small print of this particular story and notice something that you may have neglected before. Go to chapter 16, if you will, and verse 1. And I want you to think about the significance of what we're reading in the light of what we've just read in Judges chapter 11. It says in verse 1, Then went Samson to, notice where he went to Gaza, and he saw there an harlot, and went in unto her, and it was told the Gazites, saying, Samson has come hither, and they compassed him in, and laid wait for him all night in the gate of the city, and were quiet all the night, saying in the morning when it is day, we shall kill him. And Samson lay, all, lay till midnight and arose at midnight, took the doors of the gates of the city and the two posts and went away with them, bar and wall, and put them upon his shoulders and carried them up to the top of an hill that is before Hebron. We'll just stop there. Now, here's the thing if you know the story of Samson, you know that Samson had a besetting sin. Samson was a deeply immoral man, he had a very flawed character. And, uh, you know, I want you to understand that every immoral woman that Samson encountered, he met in the region that we now call the Gaza Strip. He had this idea that he could sleep with whatever woman he wanted to, and that he could, you know, do whatever he wanted to. He could drink whenever he wanted to drink. You know, he just had no boundaries. He had no sense of uh, of, uh, of of temperance, of self control. Samson just gave himself to his own fleshly desires, and he had this strange idea that he could live any way he wanted, and it would have no impact. Upon his service to the Lord. And there's a lot of people like that today. There's a lot of Christians like that today who live however they please and live very, uh, very like the world lives and uh, behave that way. And they have this strange idea that because they're saved by grace, they can live any old way they want and have no real difference on their fellowship with the Lord. And they often will cite their Christian liberty. In this area, but friends, Christian liberty should never be used as a license for sin. Yes, we have liberty. Yes, we're under grace, but we're not to use that truth as a springboard for living selfishly or carnal lives. And so, in that respect, here we have this man, Samson, who reflects pretty much the spirit of our age. Now, we're not going to suggest for one moment that Samson's behavior was as a consequence of Joshua's failure. We're not going to say that Samson did what he did because Joshua didn't do what he ought to have done. But we have to recognize that in some small part, Joshua's neglect led and contributed to Samson's downfall. You see, there wouldn't have been a heathen place called Gaza if Joshua had taken care of it and cleaned it out and destroyed the enemies of the Lord in that place and conquered that piece of territory and turned it over to the boundaries of Israel. For God said to Joshua, take all the land. And he took all the land except Gaza and Gath and Ashtore. And you see that Gaza's right there still being a trouble to the judge of Israel, Samson. Well, what about Gath? Well, Gath's also a place that we should be familiar with. If you look in First Samuel chapter 17. First Samuel chapter 17. And we come to another familiar Bible character and another familiar Bible story. Chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, it says, Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shoko, which belonged to Judah, and pitched between Shoko and Azekah in Ephesdamun. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah, and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath, notice, of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Where was Goliath from? He was from Gath. He was from that very town and that, that very area that Joshua failed to conquer. And he was a giant of a man. At Joshua eleven twenty two. again, there was none of the Anakims left in the land of, the, of, the, of Israel, only in Gaza and Gath and Ashdod there remained. Now, the Bible talks there about the Anakims. Who were the Anakims? They were a tribe of giants. They were descendants of Anak who dwelt in southern Canaan. You see, here's the thing. We tend to tell this story to our children. You know, in Sunday school or in children's meetings, we tend to tell the story of Goliath as though somehow Goliath was a freak. You know, he comes out of the woodwork. Everybody else is normal height, and suddenly this massive giant appears. And we tell it almost like a jack and the beanstalk type story. But this is not jack and the beanstalk. We're not talking here about a feeble giant. We're not talking here about a, a fairy story. We're telling biblical history. And actually, the Anakims were a tribe of men who were known for being unusual in their size, in their height. You know, some people's groups, people groups are like that. You know, uh, folks in, in, in Ireland, and Northern Ireland, the Republic, the men tend to be shorter. They tend to be shorter. But you go to other places and the people are, are tall. The Maasai tribe in Africa, I think they might even be in Kenya if I'm not mistaken, but the Maasai tribe are known for being particularly tall. They have these tall, lanky warriors. You know, they'd be well over six feet. And other people groups similarly have very tall uh, people within them. And so it was with the Anakims. They were a, a group of people who were known for their size. Look in chapter 21 of Second Samuel. Second Samuel chapter 21. Notice what it says in verse 15. 2 Samuel chapter 21 and verse 15. It says, Moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel, and David went down in his servants with them and fought against the Philistines, and David waxed faint. And Ishbi Benob, which was of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose spear weighed 300 shekels of brass and weight, he, being girded with a new sword, thought to have slain David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, succored him and smote the Philistines and killed him. Then the men of David swear unto him, saying, Thou shalt go no more out to us with, to battle, that thou quench not the light of Israel. And it came to pass after this that there was again a battle with the Philistines of Gob. And then Sabakai, the Hushethite, slew Saf, notice, which was of the sons of the giant. And there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Yaroragim, a Bethlehemite, slew the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was yet a battle in Gath. There was a man of great stature. Notice this, this giant after giant after giant, a man of great stature that had on every hand six fingers and every foot six toes, four and twenty in number. And he also was born to the giant. And when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the brother of David, slew him. These four were born to the giant in Goth and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So here's the thing. Now you're reading of four giants. Four giants from the same particular area. All descendants of Goliath, all members of the Anachron people group, uh, these men were left in Gath by Joshua when he failed to conquer Gath. Now, God used David, of course, to slay Goliath, but events might have been very different that day had Joshua conquered Gath. You thank God for David Thank God that in the valley of Elah that day, you know, he was able to take control and to win the battle for Israel. But understand, that battle would never have taken place in the first place if Joshua had have conquered this territory. Well, what about Ashdod? Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 5 now. 1 Samuel chapter 5. And I want you to notice something in this text. 1 Samuel chapter 5. Verse 1, just one verse, and then we're going to go to Nehemiah, chapter 13. But if you look at verse 1 of chapter 5 of First Samuel, simple little verse, it says, And the Philistines took the ark of God, which they'd captured, and brought it from Ebenezer. Where did they bring it to? Unto Ashdod. They brought it unto Ashdod. Look at Nehemiah, chapter 13. So we see now that Ashtod features negatively in the history of Israel. Nehemiah chapter 13, and let's read verse 23 down to verse 25. Nehemiah chapter 13, and verse 23. It says in those days also saw I Jews that had married notice wives of Ashdod of Ammon and of Moab and their children speak half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jewish language. But according to the language of each people, and I contended with them, and cursed them, and smote certain of them, and plucked off their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, "You shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons, or for yourselves." So here we have a situation where the man of Judah married. Women from Ashdod, and they bore children, and the children were brought up by their mothers, and they had lost their natural Hebrew tongue. And the consequence of that was not that they that they simply spoke a different language, but that they weren't able to speak the language of the Bible. In other words, the Bible became a closed book to them. They were no longer able to understand the Word of God, and so it was it was a case of driving them away from the truth of the Lord and from the covenant of Israel. now In all of this, whether we're talking about uh, Samson and Delilah or whether we're talking about Goliath or whether we're talking about Nehemiah's problems with the men marrying wives from Ashdod, we're not negating personal responsibility here. But we have to realize that many of these troublesome events in the history of Israel would never have occurred unless Joshua had left unconquered those three areas. Gaza and Gath, and Ashdod. You see, he laid up problems for future generations. He took his foot off the pedal. He didn't finish the job. And if Joshua had not left those areas unconquered, the Israelites would not have been defeated and demoralized and defied by their enemies time and time and time again. Now, this has a great practical lesson for us. Because I want you to think about our lives and the unconquered areas of our lives. You see, before we condemn Joshua, we have to look at ourselves. You point the finger at one, and there's three fingers pointing back at you. You see, just like Joshua, if we're honest, many of us have unconquered areas of life. We've got areas that we've never got a hold on, areas that we've never mastered. Our, area, our lives have little gazes and little goths and little ashdots that are sitting there, still under the control of the devil, still under the control of the flesh, areas that we have never surrendered uh, to the Spirit of God and to the, uh, to the Lordship of Christ. You know, perhaps it's the Gaza of uncontrolled desire which, uh, which is putting a wedge uh, uh, between you and the Lord, which is bringing guilt between you and the Lord. Let me tell you something. Maybe you're dealing with the, the, the Gaza of lust in your life, and that's a big problem in the church today. Because we're now living in an age where immoral images and immoral videos and and, uh, immoral thoughts are presented to us on a plate in the privacy of our own homes by means of the internet. And there's a lot of men and women today in the church who are in trouble in this area of lust, who've surrendered to pornography. Now, they're, in the other areas of their life, they've got it all sorted. You know, they're, they're going to church and they're at the prayer meeting and they're reading their Bible and they're in the fellowship and they're contributing to, to children's work or they're contributing to some area of church service. But wait a minute. In this one area, there's an unconquered region. A place of trouble. Maybe you're here and you're in that trouble and you've not conquered that particular Area and your Christian life is being hindered by it. In your mind, you're losing the battle against lust. Why? Not because you're fighting a losing battle. But because you're not fighting the battle at all, you've conquered the greater part of your mind. Most of your life is surrendered to Christ. But here's your Gaza. Here's your Goth. Here's your Ashdod. Here's your Achilles heel. Here's your weak link. Here's that one area. If you allow it to remain, listen to me, brother. Listen to me. It's going to store up all kinds of trouble for you in the years ahead. You see, maybe that's your besetting sin the area that bothers you the most. And you need to deal with it. Can't pretend it isn't happening. Can't pretend it isn't there. Can't pretend it isn't a trouble, for it is a trouble. You've got to deal with it. You have to determine to conquer the land, as it were, all of it. Every part that God has told you to conquer, you've got to conquer the flesh. You know here I want to I want to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 for a moment if you would look there 2 Corinthians chapter 10 Notice what Paul says to the Corinthian church here verse 3 he says for though we walk In the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Is there a stronghold in your life? A Gaza in your life? A Gath in your life? An Ashdod there? What are we to do? Casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Notice what the scriptures tell us here. We're to be casting down imaginations. Brother, sister, is your life bombarded with temptation? You know, that's one thing. It's not a sin to be tempted. That's all right. It's okay. Everybody's tempted. But the, tem- the problem is not temptation. The problem is when we allow that temptation to dwell. And it becomes a, a meditation, an imagination. Now we've given the devil a foothold, and, and Paul says, No, you've got to cast down imagination, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. He says, You've got to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. We can't permit Gaza to exist in our lives, we can't, we can't permit Goth to exist in our lives. We can't allow a little room for Ashdod over here and say, well, well, we've got the best of it. We've got the most of it under control. It's just this one little area that's a problem. No, it's not one little area. It's going to torture you for the rest of your days if you're not careful. Perhaps it's the Gaza of uncontrolled desire. Perhaps it's the Gaza... Of mistrust that is damaging your fellowship with the Lord. I wonder is the Lord calling you to trust Him in some way? Calling you to commit yourself on Him? Is He calling you to exercise a little faith? in his word, to exercise a little faith in his wisdom, a little faith in his will, and you're having trouble doing just that. You're having trouble letting go of your own instincts and trusting the instinct of God. You see, every other area of faith you may have a handle on, but in this one little area where you're just asked to trust the Lord, you're struggling. You have to conquer it. It must have become a Gaza or a Goth or an Ashtod in your life. Perhaps it's the Gaza of selfishness. You know, the Christian life is one that is a life of self-sacrifice, of denial. Denial of self, you know, is not the same as self-denial. You know, self-denial is, is what athletes do whenever they refuse to eat fish and chips on a Saturday night. That's self-denial. They refuse certain fruits. Self-denial is what priests do when they remain celibate. But denial of self has to do with the flesh. It has to do with your sinful will with regard to the things of God. Denial of self means giving up my will and surrendering it to God's will. It means putting my wants and my wishes to the cross. Dying to self. You know, I was sharing, to, uh, sharing with uh, Mark. Mark's not here today. His man flew. He's very sick. Shouldn't laugh. We're going to hold an all-night prayer vigil tonight with candles just for Mark. He's sitting at home. I apologize, Mark. He's probably in bed with a water ball. But I was sharing with Mark, all joking aside, when he was coming to preach a few weeks ago last week, I said, said, you know, Mark, when you get in that pulpit, you just have to die to self. You have to forget about yourself. You can't be self-aware in the pulpit. You just got to abandon yourself to, to the truth of God and go for it. You know, I think that's one of the reasons why we don't have and I've mentioned this, where we don't have more musicians coming forward and helping with our music ministry, is, is, is that some of you are just too self-conscious, too self-aware. If you die to self and you say, well, you know what? So what if I hit a duff note? So what if I don't get it just right? If you just said, well, you know what? I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to serve the Lord. The Lord would bless you for that. But you have to die to self. And we can't afford to be Selfish. We can't afford to be self-aware to that degree that we're not willing to serve the Lord for fear of embarrassment, personal embarrassment. So wait a minute. You know, we're struggling here. What we're struggling here with is a little Gaza. It's a little Goth, It's a little Ashton in our lives. It's the Ashton, the Gaza, and the Goth of the selfishness of sin in our lives. Selfishness can be a big problem in our lives, not only in the pulpit or in the church service, but it can be a problem in the home in our marriages. Selfishness can be a problem. You know, he wants this, she wants that. Someone has to give. In our relationship with the Lord, he has done the giving. Are we guilty of letting the unconquered sin of selfishness damage our walk with the Lord? Perhaps it's a little Gaza of unforgiveness or bitterness. You know, bitterness is a terrible thing, friends. It, it ruins so many good people. And yet, that wouldn't be if we wouldn't allow bitterness to take root in our lives. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 2. Sorry, not Hebrews chapter 2, beg your pardon. It's Hebrews chapter uh, 12 is what I'm looking for. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. Notice the counsel that is given, the exhortation that we find in this verse. It says, looking diligently, lest any man feel of the grace of God. Now stop there. How can you feel of the grace of God? By not living graciously. By not being willing to forgive. To forget. To let go. To let others off the hook. Looking diligently, lest any man feel of the grace of God. Lest any, notice any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. It's just a root. It's just a little thing. It's just a Gaza. It's just a Gath. It's just an Ashgoth. It's not a great monster of a thing. It's just a little thing. A little thing. You know, if you, have a, if you have a bad tooth and that tooth has given you toothache, it's just a little thing. It may be a root problem. You may have to go into the dentist and he say, well, we're going to have to do a root canal. That's always a good day, isn't it? You always come home blessed from that visit. Say, thank the Lord. I love dentists. They're the best. No, you're miserable. The root canal. But but if you see what he takes out, it's just a little thing. It's just a little line of mucus. And yet that is troubling your whole body. Because when you have a toothache like that, listen, all of you is miserable. It's not just that one little spot. You don't just say, "Oh, I've got a little pain here. No, you're, you're lying down and you're, you're, you're lying on that particular spot and maybe you're putting something hot under it, something warm under it to try and help it or, or, you're, or you're medicating yourself. And so it's taking control of your every thought. That's what a root of bitterness does. It's just one little area of your life, but it's taking control of, of your every thought. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31 says this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Let me tell you something, brother and sister. If you look around this room and you see someone in this room and you cannot forgive that person, the problem isn't with that person. The problem is with you. You're letting that person live in your heart and you're hitting on them. That's never Christ's way. And we're going to come to the communion table in a little bit and we're going to sit around this table as the Lord's family. How can we sit around that table as the Lord's family and not love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? It's a terrible sin. And the Bible says put it away from you. Conquer it. Get this Unconquered Gaza, Goth, Ashdod, out of your life. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted one toward another, forgiving one another. You say, "Oh, Pastor, you don't know what that person did on me." I don't even care what they did on you. you. Say, "Why don't you care?" Because I know what you did on Jesus. Your sin nailed him to a cross. My sin nailed him to a cross. Who am I then to hold? a sin against me over somebody's head when I put my Savior to the cross. Let it go. Conquer it. Are you an angry person this morning? Are you bitter against somebody? You say, well, Pastor, that's just the way I am. You know, that's not the way it's to be. See that, just the way I am? You know, we sing that song, just as I am, without one plea. And some people read it as, that's just the way I am. No, no, no. You're, to, you're not to be the same after you get saved. You're to be like Christ. Not just the way I am. Now I'm to be the way that Jesus is. I'm to reflect him. And so you can't say that's just the way I am because that's not the way you should stay. And the only way in which bitterness can defy your spiritual growth is if you neglect it. You need to deal with the Gaza of bitterness. And we could go on. I could stand here all day naming sin after sin after sin after sin. You know your own heart. You know your own life. You know your own needs. You know your own areas of struggle. You know Many Christians are tripped up not by the big things in life but by the little things, little unconquered areas. Solomon said, this take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vine. It's a little animal, but it'll ruin your harvest. And I find that the place most people are disillusioned and discouraged and defeated in is not in the big glaring sins of our lives, not the big things we face when we're first saved perhaps, but in little unconquered areas that plague us all our days. Little Gazes, little Goths, little Ashtods that were not surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. On the island of Haiti, a certain man had a house to sell. Now, property is very cheap in Haiti, and his house was on the market at $2,000. Another man wanted to buy this $2,000 home, but he was poor and he couldn't afford that amount of money so he went to the homeowner and he bargained with him and he haggled with him and the owner agreed to sell him that house at half the original price with just one little clause in the contract one little stipulation that is that he would retain ownership of one small nail protruding from just over the front door just one nail it says you can buy the house for a thousand dollars But that nail, that nail is forever mine. Well, the fellow thought, that's a good deal. I'll go for it. And so that's what they agreed. Well, after several years, the first owner wanted to buy his house back. But the new owner was unwilling to move and didn't want to sell. And so the first owner went out and he found the carcass of a dead dog and he hung it on the single nail over the door, the nail that he owned. Soon the smell of the decaying flesh in that dog made the home inhabitable and the family within was forced to sell to the previous owner who was at this point just the owner of a nail. The moral of that story is this. If you leave the devil with one small peg in your life, he will return to hang his rotting garbage upon it and making it unfit for the Spirit's use. Friends, that's exactly where many of us are in our Christian lives. We've given almost all to Christ. You see, we sing, all to Jesus, I surrender. We should probably change it to almost all to Jesus. I surrender. Almost all to him I freely give. No, no, no. We've made him Lord, but we've made him Lord of most things, not Lord of everything. But in the center of our lives, there remains just one nail driven in and protruding out. One little acre of unconquered territory, one little obstacle. To Christian growth. Allowing your Gaza. Goth, or Ashdod to remain. Gives the devil permission. To cut through everything Christ has done for you. And to trouble you all your days. You cannot afford to neglect. That unconquered area of life. It has to go. It has to be tackled. It has to be battled with. Friends. Let's not repeat Joshua's mistake. Let's determine today, all of us, to look at those little areas and say, Jesus, today I make you Lord of all. Conquer the sin in my life. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this morning.